0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz
1: every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right,
2: the summer's over, but you can still be happy because we have a special edition of The Brian Kill Me Show. Uh, this hour, we're going to bring back some of the interviews I think you like the most, and I want to share once again. Sergeant Israel Del Toro will be with us, author of a great book, A Patriot's Promise, protecting my brothers, fighting for my life, and keeping my word. And somebody who's a deep thinker that used to talk pure politics for the New York Times, now talks about values in the direction of the country, uh, David Brooks. And he came on, to, uh, it was off the really Atlantic piece off a book he's about to do called How America Got Mean. A little bit, we kind of abrasive. New York's always been a little bit mean, but is the country going that way? Well, David Brooks wrote a column about it that's going to be a book. Here's my interview with David Brooks. David, welcome back.
3: Oh, good to be back with you.
2: And so David, what brought you to this point to write something so extensive and do the research dating all the way back to the end of World War II?
3: Yeah, I've just over the last eight years, I've been obsessed with two questions. The uh, first is why have we become so sad? There's rising depression, rising mental health, rise—you know a third rise in suicide. Uh, the number of people who say they have no close personal friends has quadrupled. So like, what's going on with our society? And then the second question is, Why have we become so mean? And so I have a friend who owns a restaurant. He says he used to kick somebody out of his restaurant every week for entitled behavior. I I ran into a lady who's a nurse, head nurse at a hospital, and she said her main challenge is to keep her staff uh, because the patients have become so abusive that they want to leave the profession. And so this just sadness and meanness are like pervading our society, and I just wanted to get the roots of it. So right, and Some of it is yeah. social media, and some of it, you know, um, maybe some inequality. But to me, you know, for generations, we have, we grew up in a society that taught sort of moral skills, like how to be kind to people, how to be considerate, how to disagree well. And no one's teaching the skills anymore.
2: So does that go on parents? And when my original concept when I started reading the story was this is going to go back to social media, especially when you talk about eight years. That's really the advent of the phone and yeah. and the way we communicate, the way we're in our phones when we're, we're around our friends and family. We don't even talk to the people next to us. And I thought that was the foundation of it. But do you think it's deeper?
3: Yeah, I think that's a big factor. Um, you know, on social media, there's like judgment everywhere and understanding nowhere. So everybody feels sort of alienated. But if, you know, the phones are everywhere around the world, uh, and the social and moral crisis are mostly America. We have it worse than anybody else. So it's the interaction of of phones with a deeper problem with the culture. And my basic story there is that, you know, our founders looked around and they said, human beings are beautifully and wonderfully made, but we're also deeply broken and sinful. And if we're going to make a decent society out of people who have sinned, then we've got to do moral formation. And moral formation sounds, you know, pretentious and pompous, but it's really just three things. It's giving you a purpose in life. What are you directed toward? Maybe toward God or toward family or toward country. Second, it's restraining your selfishness so you can be a little self disciplined in front of temptation. And finally, it's just teaching like basic moral skills like, How do I develop a friendship with you? How do I if I'm gonna break up with a boyfriend or girlfriend, how do how do I do it without crushing their heart? How do I have a good conversationalist? How do I be a good listener? These are skills, like any set of skills, they need to be taught, and we sort of dropped the ball.
2: So, you know, you say Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts used to be a way of doing that, and and used to talk about some uh, outside organizations. But fundamentally, if parents aren't doing it, uh, you got to get it elsewhere. If it's a broken home, divorced home, single-parent family where they're working uh, 50 hours a week, it's got to go somewhere else. So you think we got to set up some moral structures in our society? Do you think is that somewhat of a plan?
3: Yeah, I think that's somewhat of a plan. I mean, I I think our schools, I mean, first of all, you're right, our families should be doing it. But, you know, families need to be embedded in communities where everybody's sending the same message. And with fewer people going to the church or synagogue or mosque, uh, they're not getting the message there. And then we've developed a culture, especially after World War II, where we tell people, you're wonderful, you're good. (laughs) And so you don't need moral formation. You're good just the way you are. All you got to do is look within and find the angel within. And that was sort of the self-esteem movement in the 1970s and 1980s. And so, all the a lot of the institutions that used to really do moral formation, like teaching you how to be a decent person, how to show up well, they just got out of the moral formation business, and they got into the uh, "you do you" business, like self-affirmation, and just we became a much more narcissistic and egotistical society. So, we need a moral shift, but and then we need then we need actual skills. And I've actually spent the last four years working on a book, which is coming out in the fall. And it, all I do is I collect skills, how do you become a good conversationalist? How do I listen to you with attention? When I meet you, what kind of gaze do I cast upon you? Like, I have a buddy who's a pastor in Waco, Texas, and when he meets somebody, anybody, he he knows he's looking at someone made in the image of God, and he knows he's meeting someone who's uh, so important that Jesus was willing to die for that person. And I don't care if you're a Christian, Jewish, atheist, whatever. But looking at every person you meet with that level of respect and reverence is a precondition for seeing people well.
2: I mean, in other words, uh, find the good in everybody. Find the, I'd rather see more of the good than the bad. You could find either one, but you start with, let's find the good. There's got to be something good about that person.
3: Um, yeah, to I, begin I do. With. everybody you meet is more interesting than you on some subject. Everybody you meet is better than you on so- at something. So if you ask them the questions like what they really care about, you're going to have a great conversation. And when you have a great conversation, people feel respected. Uh, And, you know, somebody said in any conversation, respect is like air. When it's there, nobody notices. But when it's absent, it's all anybody can think about.
2: Do you think we've hit different crises like this in our past? I mean, I know that there's always a sense of loss of patriotism in our past. If you read back... Uh, you know, even leading up to the war of 1812, they write, you know, where's that spirit of 76? Where, you know, these people, you know, these, this generation is as tough as we were. I mean, and they, it just amazed the same thing leading up to world war one, right after the civil war of the 1880s, they talked about how soft their kids were. Do you think that we go through cycles like this, depending on the challenges our nation has?
3: I think we do. Uh, You know, at the end of the 1880s, what you mentioned, it was like us when we were fearing we were losing the greatest generation. They were fearing they were losing um, the Civil War generation. And they did things to to take care of it. They, you know, they established the Pledge of Allegiance. They established a lot of civic practices to try to give people um, sort of moral sturdiness. Basically, college football got started so young men could learn to be a little tougher. Uh, and so every generation is called upon, to, I think, to to address the moral challenges of of their day. And in our particular day, it's this uh, rise in depression, rise of distrust, uh, rise in the ability to be, really be good friends to one another.
2: Now, how much of of this, like when people look at depression and they look at some of the medications out there, and everyone wants to see a therapist and psychologist. I for example, if you're if you're in a situation in your life you get hit by Sandy or if you're on the in Maui and you got your whole life destroyed. You don't have time to be depressed. You got to worry about the X and Xs and Os of eating, surviving, finding out where I'm going to get where we're going to live, where your family is. There was a time in which we were scrambling to make a living. And the fact is as a country, despite our debt and challenges that we have, we have a lot of luxuries that we never had past generations didn't have. And when you don't have the things that that are necessary for survival and success, and you look around and go, okay, uh, what makes me happy? I don't know, because I know I can survive. I know I have a place to live. I know I have a job. So what satisfies me when you realize you don't know what that is, in comes to the Depression, without that sense of urgency and survival, for example, in Ukraine, they're fighting so hard to survive, wondering about their loved ones. I don't know how much Prozac they need. <laughs>
3: Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, there are some cultures where they don't really acknowledge depression. Uh, I think, you know, I I look at parenting and I think and the way we do schools and a lot of the parenting in a lot of schools is based on a false idea. And that false idea is if I keep you, my child, safe, then you'll grow strong. But if I keep you too safe, you never learn to deal with setbacks. You never develop resilience. And a friend of mine points to the fact that a lot of kids have peanut allergies now in schools and they can't serve peanut butter in schools. And why are there so many more peanut allergies in schools? It's because we're protecting kids from encounters with peanuts. And so they become more vulnerable to the allergies. And so that's sort of a metaphor for uh, a better form of parenting. And I think that's part of what's happened, part of that cultural shift is we thought, I just need to keep you safe and then you'll be better. But. That's not the way you make people strong and resilient.
2: And you, is your goal to make people aware of what's going on? Uh, and unless you take a step back and analyze society, uh, you're not going to pick up. You can't change it unless you recognize it. Do you have a are you are you chronicling this or are you looking to make this an action plan?
3: I'm looking to make this an action plan. So, you know, the book that's coming out, it's called How to Know a Person. And I really walk people through it. I didn't know the skills myself like. If I want to make you feel respected, seen, heard, and understood, what you do every day on your job—you you talk to people—and but I've got to become a really good conversationalist. I've got got to become a really good listener. I've got to know how to ask questions. I've got to know when to wait when you, when I sense that you're being not you're you're being a little scared because I'm being too probing. So I've got to be patient. There are just all these social skills, uh, and we don't teach them, and so. In the book, especially, I, I I just walk people through the skills. And it's like, here's how you do carpentry. Here's how you play baseball. Well, here's how you relate to other people. It's it's a skill set.
2: You know, I do do, I I remember my kids, I go, the first thing you got to do is find out, uh, to listen to people and, and let them know you care. If they tell you that they have a big game over the weekend, the first thing when you see them on Monday is how'd you do? You have a big test coming up. Show them that you listen, you care, you do follow up. And on some level, they're going to say, I like that guy. I like that woman. You know, they 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 care. I don't know why I like them. I just get along with them. It's because they're asking questions to show that you're listening and that it what they said mattered.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, in my book, I said there are two kinds of people, illuminators and diminishers. Diminishers stereotype and ignore you. They make you feel invisible. But illuminators make you feel lit up. And they know what matters to you, like you said. And they say, "Well, how'd the game go?" Or you know, they'll they'll say, "How's your mom doing?" You know, or you know, in the, if you got a friend who's suffering, sometimes you don't have to say anything. There's nothing you can say because they're they're really going through something hard. So you just show up, and so it's just the art of presence. I had a friend whose um, daughter got banged up bad in a bike accident. She said, "You know what? The best thing that happened during the many months where we she was recuperating." Somebody came to our house, noticed we didn't have a shower mat in the shower. So they went out to Target, they got a shower mat and they just put it in. And they didn't even say anything, they just did the practical thing. And they said, she said, that was so honoring. It was like they knew what I needed, they did what was practical, and they didn't turn into a big drama.
2: Yeah, uh, take action. Uh, I think a lot of it too. The pandemic, I'm interested to see what you thought the pandemic did for. Uh, your concern about our nastiness as a culture and maybe our self-absorption, because we were told as a country, stay home, uh, stay away, don't go out to eat, and in many cases, your job doesn't matter, right? So people got introspective for a while, and they go, you know what? Uh, I think it. I think it brought everything to the surface, almost like putting peroxide on a cut. It went right to the infection in in many ways.
3: Yeah, well, it made me more less social. It took me months to get back into social life, so it did not have a good effect on my social skills. It had the pandemic had a couple, some good effects and some bad. Like, I thought there would be a lot more rise in suicide during the pandemic, but it didn't happen because people were staying home with their families and they were getting enough sleep, and so that was a good effect. But there was a bad effect, especially on young people's mental health. If you ask people um, in 2019, do you feel persistently despondent and hopeless? It was like 21% said yes. After the pandemic, it was like 40%. So just a sharp rise, especially for young people, because of that isolation.
2: And David, what's the response been to, you, to the column you put out?
3: It's been uh, overwhelmingly positive. I think people sense that you know, there's just something weird going on in our culture. Uh, and um, they're looking for explanations. And I don't know if my explanation is the whole one, like social media certainly plays a role. And, but I think I was pointing to a, a piece that hasn't been played up as much, which is, you know, we, you get, you get our, our parents, our grandparents, our schools, our churches, they don't just channel us through, they form us, they turn us into different kinds of people. And we need institutions that'll do that for each successive generation.
2: I hear you. Uh, David, great talking to you. I look forward to your book. Hopefully you'll come back on.
3: Would love to. Would
2: love to. You got it. Uh, David Brooks, New York Times opinion columnist, op-ed columnist, I should say. David, thank you. All right, when we come back, uh, well, for wrap-up this hour, take some calls. I'm going to go to some emails. I promise. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show.
4: Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade from the fox news podcasts network stay on top of the latest
5: news and information from fox news listen and download the fox news hourly update on your time the trending stories you need anytime you want it listen and download now by going to
0: foxnewspodcasts.com
4: radio that makes you think this is the brian kilmeade show
0: It occurs to me that much of the language debate is about acceptance and respect. If you're trans, give me a word, I'll call you whatever you want and I'll treat you respectfully. But don't ask me to remember 14 new terms to describe where you are on your unbelievably nuanced spectrum. It's like, that's a... way to make friends. I mean, imagine if I did that to you. Hey, Dub, you're a comedian. Oh, easy on the label. Sure, I enjoy humor and paradox, and I'm not a fan of literal expression, but I also, like, walks on the beach and parks, and I feel like a fireman. (laughs)
2: Just having some fun. That's Dove Davidoff talking about the ridiculousness. And by the way, this whole period that we're going through now with this whole trans, can trans men play with women? It does lend perfectly towards any reasonable comedian. I'm just wondering if there are comedian's worth anything that doesn't see humor in the crap we're going through right now of people saying in the debate taking place in certain blue states where let's let a kid transition without being discriminated by their parents, and saying anything. Please don't tell me that comedians are too afraid to do that in a comedy club in Tucson or in Manhattan. Because this stuff that we're going through now isn't even interesting. We used to debate really interesting topics. We used to talk about what's going on with the defense spending and how do we save Social Security? Now there's, well, should an 11-year-old be allowed to transition without telling their parents? And if they do tell their parents, should they find the parents? And what if the parents want to stop it? Could they be sued by their kid? This is some of the crazy stuff that's happening in sports as well, where people are losing their job for speaking out and others are hailed for doing just that. So, uh, just having a comedian talking from the news, it used to be hard to find humor in the news. Now you just read it and say, is this supposed to be humorous? So, a little bit later on in this hour, we're going to talk to Sergeant Israel Del Toro. He's a a patriot, and he wrote a book called A Patriot's Promise, Protecting My Brothers, Fighting for My Life, and Keeping My Word. Uh, And then we have a special edition. Guess what's happening now? Now that summer's over and we're set and you're getting off the beach, possibly now, and getting set for, I don't know, a brand new week in fall. That would we have a, the NFL season to look forward to. College football finally underway. But now we are just a couple of weeks away from a debate on Fox Business. It would be huge ratings. I love – they picked a guy from Univision, I think. I don't know who that is, but I know Stuart Varney from Fox Business, and I also know that Dana Perino. And they're probably going to probably do a debate that would be maybe focus more on the economy – But we're going to be talking about this week. What do you want to see in this debate you didn't see in the first one? And now, who's going to emerge? Think about this. How much has changed since the last debate? Nikki Haley, since he announced, has been under the radar, evidently grinding it out, blue-collaring it in Iowa, New Hampshire. Since the debate, don't think so. Does anyone not know how to say Vivek anymore? He was a lightning rod, picked fights with everybody, and they welcomed the fight, and they raised their game. Anyone who looked at Ron DeSantis saying, well, When he's not targeted, he looks like he's a guy in charge. The guy that I think will probably rethink sitting out many more debates, if in fact he does sit out this one, is Donald Trump. Because this is a positive. To get him in there talking about the issues, especially if things close down in Iowa, which some say they will. Keep it here.
4: A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade.
2: So, uh, Senior Master Sergeant Israel Del Toro Jr., retired, is now unretired, back in action. He's the author of Patriot's Promise, Protecting My Brothers, Fighting For My Life, and Keeping My Word. Uh, Sergeant uh, uh, Del Toro, welcome back. Welcome to Brian Kilmeade Show.
6: Uh, Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me on. It's a a pleasure and honor.
2: Well, I mean, to put your life story together is unbelievable. It's going to be a great movie if anyone has any brain in their head that is a producer with some financing. But uh, maybe first off, uh, with the amount of what you've already done and experienced in the military, what really pushed you to break precedent, 100% disabled, to go back in?
6: Well, you know, people kept asking me, cause when I was during my recovery, you know, when I woke up, they said my military career was over. And and they were like, what, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to continue serving. They're like, why? I was like... Because I started to do public speaking, and they would say, well, public speakers make good money, and they do. You know, some speakers, you know, can make up to six figures for a 45-minute-to-an-hour speech. And, and I, I would just tell them, it's like, there's thousands of people out there that make great money, and they hate their job. So why am I going to give up a job that I love? I love serving sort of my country. I love being in the Air Force. I love being an operator, you know, a So why am I going to give that up for a couple bucks? And, and, and that's what I did. You know, when they came back and gave me the option of of staying in to re-enlist, I, I jumped on um, on the opportunity. I was like, yes, I want to stay in.
2: So let's tell your story. Uh, you had a horrific upbringing. First year, dad died suddenly. Right. Yes, sir. How, how old were you at the time?
6: I was 12 years old uh, when my dad passed away. What did it do to your family? Uh, well, you know, uh, well, it, it it crushed us. You know, it really it crushed me. But uh, I think it affected my mom the most. Uh, you know, I like in the book, I talk how she lost her way, uh, and how I try to bring her back, uh, to focus on you know on us, you know, and trying to continue to honor my that promise I made to my dad the night before he passed. You know, to take care of your family and. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, one time, you know, she really gave it to me and and threatened me, saying, if you continue the way you're doing, uh, I'll send you to a boarding school and you'll never see your brothers and sisters again. And, you know, uh, that's when I realized, well, I'll focus on brothers and sisters and I'll try once in a while to try and bring my mom back. But, you know, it it just didn't work because a year and a half later after my dad passed, you know, she was killed uh, by a drunk
2: driver. Everybody handles grief differently. For her, it was to find another guy, dated all her friends, and finally, with an 18-year-old, they're riding on a motorcycle. She's not wearing a helmet; he does. He goes into a coma. She goes into a coma, horrifically injured. The last thing she says to you is, "Ask for M&Ms." You couldn't give it to her. That's the last thing you've ever heard her say, and she passes away. You find yourself the oldest in your family. And they didn't even want to tell you your mom was in an accident, right? I mean, they—they they, you weren't old enough for them to tell you. They had to call another adult. Cops had to come into your house and call another adult to tell them to tell you.
6: Yeah, that that, that was tough. You know, when they they came knocking on the door, like taking out—I want to say it was like about three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning—and an officer asking, "Is hey, your mom? Is this uh, Maria Del Toro's home?" I was like, "Yes, sir." It's like, "Is she home?" I was like, "I think so." Can you check? you know, I go check and like, no, I was like, well, do you have someone we can call? And, uh, you know, I'm asking what's going on, you know, because I, you know, I had just, you know, I was about to graduate eighth grade. Uh, and, you know, so I was 14. And they're like, well, we need to talk to an adult. And they made me call. Um, I think it was my aunt I called. Right. and And they told her and they wouldn't tell us anything until my my aunt and my grandparents came to the house. That's what they told
2: us. And when when she gets buried, you you stay at the grave, and you're furious at her because now, uh, you were mad, and I don't blame you. You're know, like you know I try to get you to to rein your mom in. You know you tried to rein in. Now I'm stuck. I'm going to have to raise the family. But in comes your gray her father to raise you guys, right? And he's extremely yeah. strict.
6: Yeah, but you know, my my grandpa was very old fashioned, you know, he's two generations behind. He was that generation that believed, you know, the boys were outside doing the work and, and the girls did not do sports. They stayed home and cooking clean and it was tough for especially my sister that followed me because she was into sports. She was a volleyball player and and trying to be the mediator right. between that it, it, it was tough, you know.
2: So There's so you also had to, so. Meanwhile, you have this tension at home. You're trying to be the leader. You also try to get your life together. You're determined. You're going to go to college, University of Illinois. Your teacher tell your counselor says you're not going to go there. Go to a community school. Not only do you go there, you get a you get a full scholarship, and you're going. And you go in there and you put that that acceptance and that scholarship <laughs> in front of them, and you said and you use an expletive and you got suspended. But it was worth it, right?
6: You know, I got a month worth of tension. Yeah, was, most people don't realize that. You know, I went to a uh, a Catholic school, so my counselor was a, a priest. So, yeah, oh, I didn't it, know that. It was so worth it. Yeah, yeah. So, it was so worth it. was so worth a m- month long, too, just to prove them wrong, because I never accepted what people say my life is going to be. I choose what my life's going to be. You know, and 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 nothing's wrong with a junior college, but I always wanted to go so to University of uh, Illinois, yeah. and 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 to prove them wrong, it was uh, it was worth that month long detention
2: but you're not able to go. Uh, in the end, you had to take care of your family. Your your father, your grandfather has a stroke uh, and you pretty much gotta take care of the family and you give up that college education and start working and supporting the family. And you must be like, what is going on with my life? Am I star-crossed or what? Am I cursed?
6: Yeah, yeah, for a long time, you know, I, I thought I was cursed because anytime I was on a high, uh, Brian, I just, I just got knocked back, back down and I did. I was like, why is this happening? Why, why are you challenging me? You know, you know, asking, asking God, why are you challenging me? I'm, I'm, I'm only at the the time, you know, I was what, 20 years old. And I was like, and I'm going through all this and like, well, what's going on? And, you know, maybe he had a plan and he was getting me ready for the day I got hurt and, and prepare me. Yeah.
2: Uh, so you're watching the Air Force, you're watching an Air Force commercial, you have a one rare moment where you sit and watch television, you see it and you go, I'm joining, you know, my, my, the youngest is 15, they can handle it, I'm going to join. And you join the Air Force and you talk about how tough it was, but you loved it, correct?
6: I did. I, I really loved being an operator. You know, I grew up, we grew up in the generation of Rambo, you know, who didn't want to be, you know, Rambo, you know, you know, have the long hair, chiseled body, you know, of course, now I don't have that long hair, and my son likes to say I have more of a dad bod than to the body. But, you know, that's why I wanted to be that guy. And that's why I joined, you know, my career field, because you were that guy. You were making, calling in those airstrikes, you know, for, for special operations, you know, right. for scout teams. You know, that, I, I, that was who I wanted to be. But, and, what, happened, but what happened in 2005? So 2005, you know, uh, December 4th, I was out on a mission with the scouts, and we had a high-value target. We had to capture, kill, and a supply route that the Taliban was using that we had to destroy. And, you know, I've been out there a couple days, and we're coming back to pick up the other half of our scout team. And no more than uh, 20 meters after crossing the creek do I feel this intense heat blast on my left side, and and that's when I realized, holy crap, I just got hit by an IED. And it's funny people talk about how your life flashes in front of you, and I never really believed that. But when I got hit, it was like a like a movie reel, you know, the old time movie reels where you see lit- images, but little by little. But for me, three distinct images were things that hadn't happened that were supposed to happen, like me and my wife finally getting married by the Catholic Church after our third attempt. Because every time we tried, I had downrange. Uh, second one was us honeymoon in Greece, because that's where she always wanted to go, which. I still haven't done, so please don't remind on that. <laughs> and, and lastly was, most importantly, was me teaching my son how to play baseball because I was a ball player. Right. You know, that was and that was something I wanted to do. And, and that's something clicked in my head. Was, was I said, I got to get out of this truck. Uh, but when I got out of the truck, I was You were on fire. On fire. We you, the whole body. The whole body. And you couldn't get to, to the creek, Right. I couldn't. I, I ran, but the flames overtook him, and I collapsed, and I'm laying there thinking, this is it. I broke my promise to my family that I always come back. I broke my promise to my son that I'll never let him grow up without his dad like I did. But most importantly, I'm breaking my promise to my dad that I always take care of my family. And that's when one of my teammates helps me up. It's like, DT, you're not dying here. And we both jumped in a creek, and the sound that I heard was the same sound you hear when you put a hot pan in cold water. But instead of a pan, it was my body.
2: Wow, The pain must have been overwhelming. What do you remember next?
6: Well, you know it's funny I didn't, didn't The only thing I really hurt was like my leg. Uh, but you know, as soon as I got hit, the the second half of my team that we were gonna pick up, they get hit in a crossfire, and now they're calling back asking for help. It's like, where's gunslinger, which was my call sign at the time. We need cast, close air support. So I had to figure out what to do. You know, I, again, honoring that promise to my dad, you know, these are my these are my brothers. My brothers, you know, i got to take care of them. So my radios that I had were destroyed. My backup radios were also, in the truck that got destroyed. So luckily, one of my other teammates had a radio called an embedder. And I just told him, hey, get on this frequency and repeat everything I say so we can get help in here.
2: So, so just to reframe this, by the way, I'm talking to Senior Master Sergeant Israel Del Toro. You've been burned from head to toe. You've jumped in yeah. a creek to put out the fire on your body, and you're still giving out commands. This is crazy. Yeah,
6: you know, uh, it, at the time, you know, I, I was just, I was just trying to take care of my my, my guys. That's all, I, you know. Honored, I promise. Uh, I didn't think nothing of it. Uh, you know, I remember the medic trying to take care of me, and I was like, No, I'm okay, okay. Yeah, my leg hurts, but take care of Bailey, who was our gunner, who got thrown out, blown out of the truck, and the truck had rolled over his legs. I was like, Focus on him, so we can get help for our guys. Wow. And, and and you know I, I I tried to do that and and I'm not I'll never be one to say that you know I had no fear you know when, once that last transmission went out I I guess the adrenaline started going down and I started having a hard time breathing and I started getting scared I was saying hey where's this Metavac? where's it at and, and luckily my, my the medic you know found my spark I like to say we all have a spark that drives us. It's kind of funny saying the burn guy now saying do we all have a spark? But we do, and he knew my son was my spark, and he used that to keep me up until the the helicopter the medevac landed. And I remember they wanted to carry me, and I was like, oh hell no! It's like I walked into this fight and I walked out.
2: So you walk into yeah. the fight, and, and they put you, and because I don't want to cut you off, but we got a couple of minutes left. When yeah. you, they put you in a, in a coma, and then you find out President Bush came to your side at Walter Reed. <laughs>
6: Yeah, yeah, you know, they put me in a coma. I was at Bamsey Book Army Medical Center. I never, I never got to okay. go to Street, But, but yeah, you know, uh, well, I didn't know. I was in a coma until I saw one of the guys getting a Purple Heart. And I was like, hey, did I ever get my Purple Heart? And they're like, you did? I'm like, well, when did that happen? I was like, well, it happened around, you know, January time frame. I was like, well, who gave it to me? It's like President Bush. I'm like, man, I wish I could have remembered that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was cool, you know. My wife told me he, he stood in my room for 20 minutes talking to me, even though I don't remember any of it.
2: That, that's amazing. So when you come out of your coma, your next big worry, they say you're going to be there for years, you're only there for what, how long?
6: So when I get out of coma, they tell me, you know, you're never going to breathe again. or You'll, you'll need a respirator for the rest of your life. I may not walk again, and I'll still be there for another year and a half, and my military career was over. Well, two months after they told me that, I left that hospital walking and bathed on my home.
2: And then you worried. You worried about when your son sees you and you're burned and you look different now. What are you worried about?
6: You know, it, it was, I call it my darkest hour. Because mm-hmm. uh, I never wished to die until that day when I saw my face. Because when yours burned, they cover up the mirrors. And the day I saw myself, uh, my wife was helping me, and my physical therapist was helping me. And I slipped and went and put off the, the tower off the mirror, and then I broke down. And and it wasn't a vanity thing that I didn't look like myself anymore. It was more that if, at the time I was 30 years old. If a 30 year old man thinks that he's a monster, what's a three year old son going to think? You know, he was my spark. He was my everything. And and it took like 45 minutes until you know the, uh, Gary, my therapist, says. DT, all your son wants is his dad back. That's all he cares about. And they calmed me down, but it was still on the back of my mind until the day I will see him. And what happened? Uh, When I finally saw him, you know, I walk in, and my wife says, Guero, which is, you know, his nickname. They're like, hey, Papi's here, and he comes running out. And he ran like a little penguin, and he, he comes out and sees me and stops, and all of a sudden, all this fear comes rushing back. It's like, oh my God, he's terrified of me. And all he does is tilt his head to the side, looks at me, says, "Bobby," I'm like, yeah, buddy. And comes up and gives me the most amazing hug I've ever had in my life, the most amazing moment besides seeing him being born. And I remember my wife's like, don't hurt your dad. I'm like, quiet woman, let me hold my boy, because I hadn't seen right. him since August of 2005. And McGarry was right all he wanted was his dad he didn't care what his dad looked like he just wanted his dad
2: so how that's amazing that's the culmination and where are you at today uh well you know now i'm,
6: I'm here you know i in 2019 you know uh living out here in colorado springs and, and 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 enjoying my ranch you know i'm on 35 acres yesterday people asked me BT, how you celebrated the release of your book i was like well, and it kept, my phone just kept blowing up, and, and I was like, and I finally made a video. I was like, this is what I'm doing, how to celebrate. I'm out here on my tractor cutting the grass. Awesome. <laughs> and, and that's just enjoying life right now, you know, hanging with my family, watching my son grow up and, and go out and do
2: speaking engagements because right. uh, I feel, you know, sometimes people need to find their spark. And Absolutely. they it by hearing a story. And they can get it in your book, A Patriot's Promise. He's a recipient of Purple Heart, Bronze Star, the Pat Tillman Award for Service, and he's still serving. You have no excuses after you read the story of Israel Del Toro, Jr. Uh, it's an honor to talk to you, Israel. Thanks so much for your time. Congratulations on the book.
6: Uh, thank you, Brian. Thank-
4: Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
2: Hey, welcome back. Just finishing up this special hour on the special edition of The Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for listening on a Labor Day. And if you ever missed the show or if you have finally have a day off, your schedule is a little different, hopefully you are off and you're listening to the show for the first time and say, I want to get it, just go to briankilmeadeshow.com. It's a podcast and it's one of the top podcasts in the company And that's great considering a lot of people listen to it live, most do, and yet people still want to listen on the podcast. It's truly flattering. Quick note, we've been talking about race, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy making accusations, Jamel Hill of, uh, I think it's The Atlantic, some magazine that she's writing on after being uh, just expelled from ESPN. If you want to know about race in America and why we have no right to start claiming arbitrarily racism, think about how far we've come which is one of the reasons why I wrote The President of Freedom Fighter, Frederick Douglass Abraham Lincoln, The Battle to Save America's Soul. And that's why I wrote uh, uh, a book that's coming out. Don't worry if you haven't ordered it yet, but you can pre-order it. It's called uh, Teddy and Booker T. Uh, two American icons uh, blazed a path towards racial, racial equality. And they did it across, uh, across many headwinds. When we were doing Separate but Equal and Jim Crow, Booker T. Washington would not be held down and Teddy Roosevelt would not be held back. And the way they combine, these are two stories and two Americans working together. It's a story I thought you had to know. I could not wait. I've been working on this from before the last book. I can't wait for you to get it. BrianKilme.com or Amazon. Hey, thanks so much for being here. the special Labor Day edition of The Brian Kilmead Show. Uh, this hour, I'm going to be joined by two of my favorite people, the most interesting people I will ever meet, uh, Tyrus. Uh, what he overcame in his life, what he became as a wrestler, bodyguard, and now as a commentator and stand-up comedian, uh, live or in person in an interview setting or as a panelist. He's unbelievable. He shared his story with me. I got it in two parts for you. And then Jordan Peterson. We sat down for as long as we possibly could. Two parts. We talk about happiness, what it means to be a man, life today, and what success actually is, and also about relationships Jordan Peterson, unfiltered, unedited, then Tyrus. Listen. It turns out new hires in 2023, according to a new study, are totally unprepared for work and life. Not saying everybody, but a lot of them. Psychologist and author Dr. Jordan Peterson joins us now. Dr. Peterson, great to see you. Thank you very much. So when this study popped up, we thought you got to weigh in on this. They say that Gen Zers come in, they're sincere, but if they have no necessary instinct on what to do next... Find them a lot sitting idly by waiting for instructions on what to do next. Does that make sense to you? Something about this generation that would have trouble being self motivated?
7: Well, I think that if you set up an education system that's designed to do nothing but demoralize young people and to convince them that their ambition is dangerous and, well, even world threatening for that matter, a manifestation of patriarchal oppression. ON THE SOCIAL FRONT, AND THEN A DANGER TO THE SURVIVAL OF THE PLANET ON THE NATURAL FRONT, THEN... AND YOU DON'T DO ANYTHING TO FOSTER THAT AMBITION AND TO CHANNEL IT INTO A MANNER THAT MIGHT BE PRODUCTIVE AND TO TELL YOUNG PEOPLE WHY THEIR AMBITION MIGHT BE USEFUL, THEN YOU'RE GOING TO GET EXACTLY THAT. SO YOU HIT WHAT YOU AIM AT IF YOU TRY HARD ENOUGH, AND THE EDUCATION SYSTEM HAS BEEN TRYING TO DEMORALIZE PEOPLE FOR 60 YEARS. One of the one of the things that really stuns me, you know, I haven't been able to figure this out yet. I've been trying to talk to Republican governors about this. I cannot understand why conservatives have been daft enough to allow the faculties of, educa- of education to retain their hammer lock on teacher certification for the last 60 years. It's insane. You mean right? the criteria to get the certification, and what exactly it? you have to be trained in a faculty of education to become a teacher? Why? They're the most woke element of the entire rotten university carcass. And they have the hammerlock on 50% of the state budgets. You know, the Conservatives are always complaining about the culture war. It's like, well, you handed all the young people to the faculties of education, right? Their research is terrible. It's low rate. Their students are generally uh, very uh, incompetent, comparatively speaking, on the academic front, you know. It's foolish, and, and this is the outcome. It's not surprising. And it's
2: a way to to work on the foundation. And when you have an RNC chair or a DNC chair, if you have an agenda, that's what to work on. Don't get Mr. and Mrs. Uh, uh, candidate elected. Start focusing on on the direction you want the country in, and find out how to um, how to give people an education that will allow them to, at the very least, think, but not what to think.
7: Well, the left wingers in the 1960s were far SEEING ENOUGH, THE MORE RADICAL TYPES, TO ENVISION A DECADES-LONG MARCH THROUGH THE INSTITUTIONS, RIGHT? AND ONE OF THEIR GOALS WAS THE CAPTURE OF EDUCATIONAL INSTITUTIONS, AND THAT'S HAPPENED COMPLETELY. AND THAT'S BEEN ABSOLUTELY ABETTED BY CONSERVATIVES WHO TEND TO GET LOST IN THE DETAILS. AND, um, WELL, THEN, YOU THINK NOW YOU HAVE YOUNG PEOPLE WHO ARE DEMORALIZED AND DIRECTIONLESS. WELL, THEY'RE NEVER TAUGHT ANYTHING ABOUT HOW TO ACQUIRE A DIRECTION. YOU KNOW, WE DID A STUDY, I used this program I developed called Future Authoring. We did a study where we had three studies, actually, where we had university students sit down, essentially, for 90 minutes, right. 90 minutes, this was it, and write out a goal, a series of goals for their life, right? Who could they be in five years across seven important dimensions of their life? And where might they be that would be terrible if they didn't get their act together? We dropped their dropout rate 50% and raised their grade point average 30 by 35%. Three separate studies... So, uh, not me, we, I was lucky enough to keep working, but I had to work
2: remotely. Uh, everyone's life changed. And people took a deep breath and they said, why am I in this job? Why is it necessary for me to do this? Uh, if life does stop, nothing will change. It seems like our population got off the treadmill and said, why, why, why get back on? And they're having trouble getting back on. When they get back on, they're not as motivated because they don't know why they're doing it. And you said to me in the break on Fox & Friends this weekend... It's because they don't have goals. They don't have a vision. If you have a vision, that leads to happiness. Why? Because you have a mission. You have yeah. a direction. Because you know what you want the end game to be. And that's mm-hmm. back to your fifteen minutes. It also you put that fifteen minutes
7: and you find out what your end game is. Don't tell me you don't know. Work on it. Well, no, it does two things. Having a goal. Well, if you have a goal and it's a collective goal, that unites people. So a a collective vision is what unites people because then everyone is heading in the same direction. Everyone regards the same things as positive. Everybody uses the same structure to protect themselves from anxiety and their emotions are aligned. So a goal, a united goal, a collective goal is what unites us, all right? Then on the individual front, If you have a goal and you see yourself taking steps towards it, that is what produces positive emotion and positive motivation, that enthusiastic desire to get up and go. And it also stops anxiety because you either have a goal or you're fragmented. If you're fragmented, you don't know which direction to go in. That gives you too many directions. That makes you anxious. That's what anxiety signals Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to go. I'm out. I'm out. out.
2: And, And I think that what you just said with that 15 minutes is so important. Because especially with teenagers, just in college, just graduating, I don't really know what I want to do. What do you want to mm-hmm. do? Well, that it's fine to know that, but you got to take action to solve that. Mm-hmm. To do that, you got to go take action to go find out. What does Dr. Jordan Peterson do? Why does he mm-hmm. seem so fulfilled? What about the guy down the block that owns a garage? Why does he seem happy every day? Well, mm-hmm. he always wanted to be his own business, go his own shots. He wanted to help people, but you have to go work at finding out what is effective. I think you have an obligation to make the most out of life, and I think people get the wrong. Uh, definition on happiness. Mm -hmm. What is happiness? People happiness is not high five and necessarily smiling. It's having
7: a mission. Well, it's also not the gratification of immediate desire. Like there's actually two forms of positive emotion. eh? There's there's the emotion that you feel, let's say, after having a good meal, after a Thanksgiving dinner. And that's just satiation. Okay, but satiation puts you to sleep. Right? Now it's pleasant because you don't need anything, but it isn't it isn't motivating motivation comes in a pursuit, you have to be pursuing a goal. And so then you have to figure out what your goal is. And it's not optional. You know, the other thing for people to think about is, well, you know, you might say, well, I'm the sort of person that doesn't plan. It's like, well, that's because you're afraid. That's part of the reason and you should overcome that. But it's also the case that if you don't have your plan, someone else has a plan for you. And whatever responsibility you abdicate will be taken up by tyrants. And whatever direction you don't provide for yourself will be provided by other people who don't have your best interest in mind. That's how it works. Coming up after the break, more Dr. Jordan Peterson.
2: You're listening to Brian Kilmeade on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
4: You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
2: Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. As promised, here's more with Dr. Jordan Peterson. So, Dr. Peterson, I watch you, too, in the break. People, like young men, especially, walking up to you, kind of your autograph, asking you a quick question. Yeah. So you're helping people. And that must be a good feeling. A lot of people think, well, how do we, how do I feel satisfied? One of the things I think is universal is there's nothing better than helping somebody, mm-hmm. and one of the things you can do when you have a family on a regular basis, you're training, you're solving problems, bringing them to practice, bring get them to a better school, pro- going doing your best to be mm-hmm. to make an effort to be a good parent, mm-hmm. and that leads me to what would be an absence in my life without a family. It would just mm-hmm. be it would almost be like not having an appendage, and now I also mm-hmm. see in America more and more people having less kids or no kids, deciding yeah. not to get married. Or decide to be childless. And I respect everybody who makes that decision, that's fine. But do you think it points to a bigger story in the world today, in this country today?
7: Well, one of the points that I've put forward that has become rather markedly popular is the notion that the meaning that sustains you in times of trouble will be found as a consequence of adopting responsibility. See, and this is another thing conservatives haven't been very good at. Communicating to young people because conservatives tend to be somewhat finger-wagging in their morality. You should do this. Right. And, you know, fair enough, there are things you should do. But there's a better story there, and the story is the one that you started to outline, which is, well, if you look at this... If you look at what you have at hand when times get rough, let's say, which they certainly will, you'll find that most of the genuine self-esteem that you feel and the cessation of anxiety and the pursuit of happiness is a consequence of bearing responsibility, right? You bear responsibility for yourself over the long run, for your wife or your husband over the long run, for your family, for your community, and that's a reciprocal interaction, so you'll get paid back by the people you're helping for doing that, but it also is an intrinsic sort of meaning. But you don't do it for that too. No, no, you, yeah. do it, you do it because everything works if you do that. So the other thing, see... We thought for a long time, and this is actually, can be laid at the feet of psychologists to some degree, that your happiness or even your mental stability is somehow an internal thing. It's psychological. But that's not exactly right. Your mental health and your happiness, so your freedom from anxiety and your happiness, is dependent on the harmony that you establish in, within the systems that you're embedded so you can't be sane and happy without a long-term partner. And the data on that is quite clear because married people are a lot happier than unmarried people, okay? You can't be sane and together within a couple without having a family. It might be your parents and your siblings, but it should also be children because that you have to knit that together. And then your family can't function without a functioning neighbourhood and then a community and then a state. And the sanity is the harmony between all those levels. It's not something you carry around inside you. And it's it's partly key to sanity, being embedded at all those levels, because none of us are capable, in and of ourselves, of regulating ourselves. Like when you and I are even talking right now, the communication regulates... WE REGULATE EACH OTHER WITH THE COMMUNICATION, RIGHT? YOU'RE SAYING THINGS, I'M SAYING THINGS, WE'RE TRYING TO KEEP IT INTERESTING, WE'RE TRYING TO MOVE FORWARD, YOU KNOW, IN A PRODUCTIVE WE'RE BOTH STIMULATED AND INTRIGUED. Exactly. WELL, RIGHT, RIGHT. SO WE HAVE A CONTAINER, WHICH IS THE GOAL, AND THEN THERE'S INTEREST BEING MANIFESTED, AND IF WE DO THAT RIGHT, WE PULL EVERYONE IN. WELL, THAT'S A GOOD SITUATION, RIGHT? AND THEN YOUR EMOTIONS ARE WELL REGULATED WHEN ALL OF THAT IS HAPPENING. THAT KEY TO THAT IS RESPONSIBILITY. You know, we talked on the Fox and Friends episode about the fact that young men are turning more towards conservatism. Yeah. And I really believe, and I've watched this a lot, that that's because they're starting to understand more explicitly the utility of adopting a heavy load of responsibility. Now, I I mentioned that, you know, I think the girls will go along with that in a few years. And I was thinking that through the other night. Boys go out with younger girls. There's a dichotomy between the political position of boys and girls that are the same age, but Girls the same age as high school boys aren't their peers. The boys are with younger girls. The younger girls will change in that more conservative direction if the boys change first. Wow. That's what'll happen.
2: Uh, real quick on education, you talked about accommodations. So someone has uh, ADD, they're told, they're, yeah. uh, dyslexia or other things. Yeah. In the public school now, there's a lot of accommodations. Give me, give, I'm going to give you more time for your test yeah. or things to that nature. I have trouble tracking across the line. You think accommodations in many cases don't show progress, can, can be limiting. Why?
7: Well, the problem with the accommodation hypothesis is something like the advantages, well, you want to do what you can to help people who might have obstacles that could be overcome to learn. That's not unreasonable. But the problem with the accommodation hypothesis is, well, what happens when you have an actual problem to solve? You're not going to be accommodated. You're not going to be accommodated in a workforce that requires genuine competition. Because if you're accommodated in a workforce that requires genuine competition, you're just going to be taken out. There's no time for that. You might say, well, there should always be time. It's like, well, not if there are important things at stake. Well, it's it's, there's going to, you, that's foolish, right? Because when you're making important decisions, you're always balancing one catastrophe against another. You don't have the option that everything's going to turn out. And so the problem with accommodation, well, first of all, it's going to be gamed and it's being gamed like mad. And second, it gives the person who's being accommodated to. THE WRONG PICTURE OF THE WORLD TO WHICH THEY'RE GOING TO ADAPT. THINK ABOUT THIS WITH PARENTHOOD. HOW SHOULD YOU TREAT YOUR KIDS? WELL, AS A MOTHER AND FATHER, YOU SHOULD BE A PROXY FOR THE WORLD. MAYBE A SLIGHTLY MORE MERCIFUL PROXY. BUT BASICALLY, THE MESSAGE YOU SEND YOUR KIDS ABOUT THEIR BEHAVIOR IS THE SAME MESSAGE THAT THE WORLD IS GOING TO SEND THEM. SHOULD BE. BECAUSE, OTHERWISE, YOU'RE NOT PREPARING THEM FOR THE WORLD. YOU KNOW, SO MAYBE YOUR KID'S ANNOYING AS HELL to you and your wife, and you don't do anything about it because you think, well, we're all mercy. It's like, that's just fine until your kid has to make a friend or, you know, deal with an adult that's not you, in which case they're going to get slaughtered. There's nothing merciful about that. And if you accommodate people beyond what the environment itself would allow, you, uh. get, you misinform them about the, the world they're going to inhabit. And plus, it can be gamed, and it's being gamed constantly. Yeah, and, and lastly... I just noticed, too,
2: as much as, you know, the crowds that you draw, you told me you're going over to the Middle East where you have this huge foundation. It's unbelievable what you've done. I always find, too, when you talk about yourself and your relationships, you sound like you have the same issues that everybody has. Of course. But I think people, that also helps tell the Jordan Peterson story. I'm trying hard to be successful relaying what I learned, but I'm still dealing with the same stuff.
7: Well it's important for people to know that people who are successful, let's say, aren't the people who are fortunate enough to have no problems. No one is in the category of fortunate enough to have no problems. People like that don't exist. Everybody deals with aging and death and severe illness, and like, I you, know perf- you deal with that and your wife at the same time. Yes, yes, and my daughter, too, all of us at the same time. And, you know, it's the case for everyone. Now, you meet people now and then, and I met lots of people like this in my clinical practice who have so many things going wrong at the same time that, you know, it's just an unutterable catastrophe. But the fact that there are people like that and there are people who are clearly, clearly experiencing higher levels of misfortune, say, than the norm, doesn't mean that the successful people are the ones who have no problems. That's just the successful people are the people who keep on going and, AND THEY'RE FORTUNATE ENOUGH TO BE ABLE TO DO THAT OFTEN, TO KEEP ON GOING REGARDLESS OF WHAT'S BEING THROWN AT THEM. RIGHT. AND, and that's, THAT'S IN THE NATURE OF SUCCESS, RIGHT? And
2: DON'T TAKE FOR GRANTED ONE DAY THAT IT'S GOING TO CONTINUE IF YOU PUT YOUR HAND, uh, TAKE YOUR FOOT OFF THE GAS. Uh, YEAH, that, THAT AS WELL. ONLINE SCHOOL, YOU AND YOUR DAUGHTER yeah. WORKING TOGETHER. Yeah. WHAT DO WE
7: KNOW AND HOW DO WE GET IT? WELL, WE'VE GOT ABOUT 30 COURSES RECORDED SO FAR IN A STUDIO IN MIAMI. Um, they're, they look very good. They're very professionally produced. We are trying to find the best lectures in the world. So if you think you're a good lecturer and you want to participate, give that some thought. That's Peterson Academy. We hope we'll be ready to roll in November. We want to make sure that we have the best lectures that we can possibly provide on the most germane topics. And then we're going to ally that with a very stringent testing and accrediting system so that if you are a graduate of this particular institution. The people who hire you will know that you learned what you were aiming at learning and that you did the proper work. And that's extraordinarily important because employers need to know that. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Jordan
2: Peterson, I know you had a few hurdles to clear to get here. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I know our audience does. Best success uh, coming your direction. And, well, if you want to go
7: see you in person, just go to... JordanBPeterson.com. Jordan yep. there's you. some tickets on sale for a show I'm going to do in London. I started this alliance. I'm participating in this Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, which we're trying to produce a worldview that isn't for the future that isn't predicated on fear and compulsion. And so, um, there are tickets on sale in, for London now at the O2 for the public part of that. So.
2: Wow, you don't do things small. Dr. Peterson, thanks so much. Hey, you bet. Great to see you, sir. Thanks for the invitation. All right, right, how great was that? What I love most about Dr. Jordan Peterson, he looks at your questions, he actually thinks about them as if he's never heard them before. I find it flattering. When we come back, another guy I find endlessly interesting. Tyrus, straight ahead. Brian Kilmeach, Labor Day edition. Keep it here.
4: Listen, the more you'll know, it's Brian Kilmeade. One more time, Jimmy. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jimmy Fallon.
0: I'm Stephen Colbert. I'm Jimmy Kilmeade. I thought when you said Jimmy, you meant me, Jimmy, but you meant Jimmy, Jimmy. I always mean you. But when you say Seth Seth Meyers, who do you mean?
4: I mean John Oliver.
8: It's the five of us together for
4: maybe an hour a, a day. Strike Force 5 is the name of our podcast. Subscribe to it now.
2: So the five talk show hosts who don't have a job because of the writer's strike, uh, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, uh, John Oliver, and Seth Meyers have gotten together, put together a podcast. So I just saw uh, Tyrus at the App Store. We met. We go there all the time. And he was downloading the app to know they get the podcast. And I said, Tyrus, you want to come on and talk about it? Because you're in late-night television with the number one show with Gutfeld. Tyrus is here. Uh, Tyrus got that memoir out. He's got a new book he's working on, too. But he's got a memoir that gives you an idea how he got to where he is today. What's your reaction to the five guys getting together just to to talk?
5: You know, I I always support you. But... um... You were just completely dishonest with the American people. We go to the app store, you and I. We go for uh, video games and stuff. Let's be <laughs> honest. All right, <laughs> uh, this is the first I've heard of it. Uh, really? man, I said, what do you mean? Really? They want to just raise money. The, they want to the raise, raise money. Yeah. Uh, the five of them get together. Uh, how long will those egos last? I mean, I, I get it, but even I always think when stuff like that comes together, it's like it's out of desperation. Obviously, they want the strike to be over. Um, I guess I never heard of improv, but, uh, and get back to work, but it's a, it's a nice attempt. I think, uh, together, you know, if they film it, maybe they can give us a little run for our money. So
2: Tyrus, this is a couple of things. Do you know, did you watch late night television at all growing up?
5: Oh, of course. I mean, I I watched Johnny Carson. I watched, uh, Letterman. Arsenio uh, uh, was was good. Um, Arsenio was like, Hey, uh, we could do this too, and um, you know, and Bill I Clinton famously played the saxophone. He used yep. to be where
2: things happened.
5: He had that, and then of course Jay Leno uh, was good, and uh, so you watched it as much as I, I could, you know, being in school and stuff. Even, you know, it was only like Friday nights, but uh, and then I watched more of the old Carson stuff. Because that's when it was just funny. When he had like Don Rickles on there, and he had uh, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. on there, and and they had the, the great TV actors from that day. Uh, and it are, would be so, be unscripted. Oh, it would it, just be it just go. Everything now is such a promo. Well, they can't work because no one to write their jokes for them. I think that should say a lot to the fans. You know, that should be like you know the stuff they say. Uh, they're just reading a teleprompter. So, really, the, the ones you miss are the writers. Right. So, maybe the writers should get paid more.
2: If I remember correctly, Leno, when they went on strike, took a week over and they said, I'm going to go back, I'm going to write my own stuff. He yeah. was writing his own monologues.
5: Yeah, because he was talented. <laughs> and he's a workhorse. He's a workhorse. Like You know, you think Car- Carson would ad-lib, you know, but um, I guess the other side of it, it's a show of solidarity that, that we won't work while we're supporting. But then... Then they go out and they do a podcast, so they are kind of working. So this is what bothers me. The history
2: of television is competition. Today's show, Good Morning yep. America, Carson, Joey Bishop, you know, you, Dick Cavett, and he stopped talking to you. Don Rivers, they never talked again. you going to come against me? You know, I'm yep. never talking to you again. Letterman and Leno fractured. The friendship fractured. Oh, really? Yep. You got the tonight show over me? I'm doing my own thing. And Those are the days. That's America. Right. You're going to compete with me? These guys don't compete. They, don't they comp- actually well, not- swap
5: shows. I guarantee you, if, if any of them was in first place, it'd be different. Let me tell you what we did. Let me tell you what the Gutfield did, because we, for whatever reason, don't get invited to the Emmys, right? Probably because we won't cut the check. Right. But um, they knew better than to give the Emmy to the second best, which is probably Colbert. Colbert, I think, is, is the, the toughest competition we have. So instead of that, they gave it to John Oliver, which was the lowest rated show. So the we HBO made, once a week. Yeah, we made the late night Emmy a participation award. And I am more prouder than that than i actually winning an Emmy, because we took the establishment and they gave it to the lowest rated show. That's so, so interesting. Yeah. So that shows, although they pretend like we don't exist, but they weren't willing to give the the they weren't willing to admit they were going to have to take the silver. So I, I take that as that in itself is when they won't show up when they refuse to take second. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you're in their head. So a couple of things.
2: I don't know where you were when. Stephen Colbert first launched, he was getting zero ratings. The only reason he got ratings is because he just went all on the offense against Donald Trump. Right. Well, they- And they just, they will not even split it. Like, if you watch Leno, sometimes he'll they'll do this thing with Jimmy Fallon. Where Jimmy Fallon says, you know, I, my calves bother me. I need a break. And he'll walk out, and Leno takes over out of respect. Right. And he'll come to his mouth. You know what he does? Immediately starts hitting both sides. And guess what happens? Both sides laugh. Yeah. Because it's an equal opportunity offender. Why do you see it ever coming back?
5: There's because here's the deal. There's the the Trump hysteria. There there was a short term spike in it. CNN went in all in. Uh, all these media guys went in. All these journalists went in. And you look at the guys who were at the at the forefront of the of the attacking the Trump train. Um, uh, what's his name on uh, um, CNN? Don Lemon went hard in the pain. a the K. Tapper. Jay Jay kind of does the thing where he'll say something and then kind of like apologetically back out of it, but uh, like uh, Acosta went all in. He was all in. He was this nemesis. He hassled rude him as hell. Could just nonstop. And when it was over, wow! You've been you've been in the gym, huh, bro? You see you that? Just, wow! <laughs> just ripped the just microphone relaxed. off. Acosta really bothered you, but uh, no, it's okay. It's okay, Eric. We can wait to the break. And uh, <laughs> look at that. But <laughs> once it was over he went away they gave him a show it tanked out you know uh, that's the thing they all went in because you know um fallon had that great bit with trump president trump's hair and he caught so much hell for but everyone was laughing he had everybody and they 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 bet on the half the country that but they realized that the other half of the country who works and comes home at night those are the ones who are sitting and watching 11 o'clock to laugh and go to bed so they just basically kind of spit in the face of half the country, and then they are shocked that their numbers went in the tanks because the people they bet on, once the the Trump thing was done, they they didn't stay with them; they didn't come back. CNN is in the, is like battling with HLN.
2: So I, w- I was talking to Pierce yesterday, and he's friends with James Corden. Yeah, and James Corden had very creative stuff. I, of course, he had to do his obligatory Trump's terrible. But he used to do plays. Like, he nope. used to stop traffic and do mini plays while the light was red and then come back. They used to do extraordinary things. But know what they said? The amount of money you're costing me to do this show, where Letterman used to thrive in that, that area, yep. actually the exact same show, I'm not getting the ratings. So, w- basically, they can't afford him anymore. So he's like, I'll just go back to England.
5: That Things are changing right before our eyes. Well, the thing is, here's what it is. When you when you come on at 12 midnight, the viewer is not trying to be scared or angered. They're trying to go to sleep with a smile on their face. And you want to make everybody laugh and happy and plays on the road, I would rather hear, than bashing a president that half the country voted for. Right. Like, it just—there it, was no money and sense in it. And then uh, some of his off-the-field stuff was a little weird. But again, it goes to the same thing where— you mean in the restaurant when he blew up at people? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. But you get into this thing where you—the best thing to do is make fun of everybody. Don Rick the Don Rickles philosophy is what I live my life by. I, I make fun of I make fun of Trump. I even occasionally, although I don't make fun of you because that's all Gutfeld does. That's all he does. I, my role is to be like, why? 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 <laughs> <laughs> He's a good guy man What are we doing here like, Right And if you can't convince him I mean there's I heard of shooting in the tent But like throwing dynamite sticks In the tent is ridiculous Right I was shocked when Perino Perino took a shot at you No way Yeah and I was like What are we You too Yeah she took a shot Allison, at you was I not Was I not informed of this Are you trying yeah. to keep me When Dana Perino turns Dana Perino hosts the show And I, I believe it had to do With some level of creepiness and your picture popped up, and I just went YouTube at two Perino. Oh, oh, wow. So like, th- I, I will have you know, last night when I hosted, there were no kill me shots. Would you have taken them out? Yeah, I'll, that, I see. Here's the thing: you wrote it. You wrote I write it. my own stuff. Oh, okay. So at no point was I gonna. Shoot, who uh, I just don't understand it. Like anybody who needs help, kill me there because <laughs> it's not like you're going home. Like, yeah. you know, you don't even have lunch breaks. Right. That's what I, it, I, I do eat at my desk. Yeah, you do. You know, <laughs> you say that's in my backpacks book. Yeah, that's Thank cute, you.
2: good stuff in there. Darius, uh, last thing is I had uh, I interviewed Greg twice in a half hour one for Fox and Friends and then one for the Saturday show. Yeah. For his book, Late Night. And in it, uh, we bumped in in the Fox and Friends with all his hits on me. Right. And I said, explain yourself. And we just went back and forth. People are writing headlines. Kill me gets his revenge. Demands it. That's not what I said. We're just having fun. Explain it. But it goes to show you, even though we're in the media,
5: anytime you do something on Fox, they're not going to understand it. No, well, or they're going to try to... Creeped Make it indeed. literal, yeah, yeah. like I, absolutely yeah. literal. Yeah, you know, because I said I was talking about uh, we were we were talking about neo pronouns, right? And basically, my my philosophy on that is if you are spending time inventing things for yourself instead of competing. Like if you're not doing well in school, then you say, well, you're not a, you You identify as a non-school learner, you know, or whatever the hell yeah. it is. And I said, if my children came home with that attitude and, they, and instead of doing their homework, they said, these are my pronouns, daddy. I said, well, my pronoun would have been, I think I said, butt whipping, but I was using the <laughs> A <an> word, right? <laughs> Next day. Tyrus threatens to assault children. That's right. I saw that. I never read <laughs> the article. <laughs> no one read. No one read that. Yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> like at least, at least when we had like the old tabloids, it'd be like Tyrus has a lucid affair with Batwoman. You know, that like something cool, like cooler. Right. Uh, Tyrus f- finally fit on alien spaceship. Hopefully, they'll keep him. Right. So you mm. know, but like it's just that's the the they try to go literal to try to get a thing. You know, and and you going after Guthrie. I think it's passwords. I think it's passwords. I'm retired. I happen to know a promoter by the name of Billy Corgan. You know, at some point, I think you got to say, with your UFC background uh, and your clear, clear upper body strength, you just ripped the microphone off the thing. Right, right, yeah. Uh, I think it's time to call Gutfeld out. Man to man, let's settle this in the ring, Um, and and let's just make it happen. Do we make it early morning or late night? Oh, you make it it early morning because that way it will be quick. And literally, as soon as you get done, (laughs) we'll have your suit pressed and ready for you, and you won't miss any of your hits. You remember Brian Kilmeade did the first five UFCs. That's what I'm saying. I went to school on this stuff. You went to school stuff. You hung out with one of the toughest human beings on the planet, Jim Brown. Like, you have complete advantage. Back in a moment.
4: It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
6: Former Secretary of State Condoleezza
0: Rice, whose own story personifies what good education can do, called it a national humiliation. And for once, she wasn't talking about Kilmeade's haircut.
2: (laughs) So... Tyrus, I I I can't uh, give me a second to compose myself. Yeah, Dana Perino, Dana I'm Perino, on the shots. only
5: person she's ever went after ever. Oh, and if 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 you would have kept that going, you would have heard a slight. Why, why? I threw my hands up. Why? What are we doing here? Kill me, on And here's the thing: she also used foul language. She dropped an MF her at the end of her for thing. She was like. Not to do with me. No, she was jacked, too. Like, uh, she had done some planks or some pull-ups. Yeah, she was She was. She was, I had never seen this side of her. It was completely aggressive. And I don't understand it. You guys worked together on the five that day. There was no reason for hostilities. I just, you know, may, I don't know. Put it this way:
2: not only did I work I worked the next day, yeah, and there was not even an
5: acknowledgement of the shot given. She must be, she must think that I'm over it. I am not over she, it. She, I you know what she assumes is because you get up early. I think Greg thinks the same thing. There's no way he's going to see this. Yeah, but the problem—you have is, eyes and ears everywhere. I do, and the problem is
2: now it's on at ten o'clock, so I'm watching the
5: repeat when right. I'm coming to work, so I see it all. Yeah, and my self-esteem will never recover. I mean, let's just—what's going on with with, with Dana? I'm you and I are having a heartfelt thing about my retirement, and she talks about my calves. Oh yeah, like, what, just, what is What is? with all the anger? I know it's unbelievable. To a guy who never skips leg day, like squirrels confuse my legs for trees. Like it's just, it was just unbelievable. I don't want cold. to put you on the spot, but after this, I have a few reads to do. I, do you want to go to human resources? You know what? No, (laughs) because can you imagine running her in the hallway? (laughs) She terrorizes me. There's two people I fear at Fox. That's Judge Jeanine and Dana Prino. I always stay on their good side.
2: There's one thing you'll never see, Tyrus, in the waiting room, inside human resources to file
5: a complaint. I think they'd be like, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Your feelings are hurt. Look at you.
2: The other thing that I find fascinating is this guy, Alvarante. I read a column yesterday by Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times. Every Democrat hates it. And he said, what happened... To the Democratic Party, if you listen to the words, if you listen to what he said, that's used to be the Democratic Party. He's going to bat for the for the little guy who says that they don't get they get taxed too much. You know, other people don't. North of Richmond used to be a problem. That everything goes outside the joke when he said, "If you're five foot three and three hundred pounds, don't I don't want to support your your uh, junk food." Besides that. He says everything else he said used to be the Democratic Party. And then he got mad that the Republicans were saying, you're my anthem. So here he is on Joe Rogan. I want you to hear some of it
8: when a
4: person like yourself gets labeled a right-wing, left-wing fanatic, like right out of the
8: gate. <laughs> both, in, <laughs> both in like a week and a half. then yeah, at least I know I'm doing something right.
4: You know, why do people have to attack?
8: Well, it? I think it's just for whatever reason, I've been, I'm the subject matter the last couple of weeks. In everyone's defense, I probably haven't. I've waited for, th- for this opportunity I guess to really have a real conversation with somebody about whatever it is I am. So people are just trying to find who's this Oliver Anthony guy and what is he and where does he work and who did he vote for and what's his family like and because they want to sort of build this um, image of whatever it is that the person behind the song represents, for better or for worse. Right. It's really funny to watch on my end because, obviously, I know what's true and what's not, and so, like, just even what I've skimmed through of people sending me, like, like singing at the Super Bowl, like, how many people have formed an opinion about whether or not I should be paid to sing at the Super Bowl? Like, I'm not singing at the <laughs> Super Bowl. That's just some somebody made up. There's been hundreds of hours of people's time wasted probably talking about all these little, like, things that don't even exist. It's just somebody made them up and put them on the internet and... So I'm just letting them ride. I think, they're, I think, it's, I think it's great. It's wild. I, I just think it's great like, that at least the last couple of weeks I've been able to entertain everyone and get everyone's mind off like all the, all, all the other horrible stuff that's going on in the world right now.
2: So what do you think, uh, Tyrus? What well, do you think about the phenom a week later?
5: You know, I think the, here's, the, here's the point. And I think what happened to the Democratic Party is pretty easy. Bernie Sanders brought the socialism in, and it just spread because now moderate Democrats are considered right wing. Like Bill Maher has not changed his politics at at all, all. but he's right wing. Um, You know what? But it's not just him. It's everybody. You know, recently there was an article written about me, how I, my net worth was, I think it was 5 million, but I had blown it all on poker and drugs and nothing to do with it. And I I, I just (laughs) wrote back, sir, I've never played poker. Uh, You uh, (laughs) You know, it's just, they try to throw things on the wall for the reaction. You know, they they get the reaction because usually, if you say ten bad things about somebody, they're hoping that the the laws of averages, forty of percent of it will be right, I and mean, then you just connect the thing with feelings. And there's no facts, and just anything that's said against the narrative, because it's the progressive party now, and they're the the minority, but they're convincing everyone that they're this giant thing. But the and voting bait, the blue collars is moving to Republicans. I mean, oh, they've they've picked it up. If you're because of very simple things. When you go to the grocery store and your average bill for the last – let's take President Trump out of it. During Obama, grocery bills weren't ridiculous either. So you, if you averaged $150 a week for a family of four for groceries, and then all of a sudden that same grocery bill is now $300, you're going to have a problem because that money has to come from somewhere else. And then all of a sudden your light bill's up 40 percent because the taxes to keep your light bill going – no one – everyone talked about gas. No one talked about electricity. Electricity bills were killing people. Utility, a, absolutely, at one point you were looking at now. All of a sudden, your light bill was eighty-five bucks. Now it's two hundred eighty-five bucks. And then, so now that's five hundred bucks that you're out now, and you're you're not getting a raise. That's all that really they care about when their check comes and they divide it up. Yeah. I got to pay for this. I got to pay for that. Pay for that, and then like they don't have anything left. What do we promote for Tyrus? Oh, uh, you know I got my live events. You look it up on my uh, link tree. And of course, Nuff Said comes out in November. You can pre-order now on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. All right, good. We'll promote each other's books. And I will not insult you on air. Thank you. Only in person.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, you are going to love this hour. How about being inspired by this great story of Sage Steele? But first things first, the man that really held the keys to success, to help Michael Phelps win all he did and have happiness in his life, and Tom Brady. He's known him since college, and Tom Brady simply says, "Without him, I would have become the Hall of Famer that that he we all know he's going to be." Here's my interview with his life coach, the one of the real stars of the University of Michigan, Greg Harden. Greg, welcome. Well, good morning, indeed, young man. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm pumped up already. So, Greg, <laughs> wh- now is, is, why is this the right time for you to write your books and and unlock? and let everyone know your secret to your success. Is it because Tom Brady called it a career? Well, no, it's because people like Tom and Desmond Howard have been harassing
9: me, bothering me, poking at me to get something done and put it out there so that people can see that it's not about sports. What I taught them is what I'm teaching anyone that will listen, and that is how to become the world's greatest expert on one subject yourself.
2: And who taught you?
9: Man, that's a great question. (laughs) God has a sense of humor, that's for sure. And I had to learn the hard way how to get out of my own way. And that's what we're trying to do, is get people to understand that usually their limitations are self-imposed. And so uh, I learned from, I had great mentors. I had amazing people in my life who who signed up and believed in me before I believed in myself.
2: So is this about success, or is this about happiness?
9: Ooh, my man. <laughs> See, that's a great question, because a lot of people, when you ask them to describe success, if they don't include happiness, they're confused. Because you and I know, you and I know people who are extremely successful who are not happy who are depressed and miserable, who might even take their own life. So, yes, success comes when you are pursuing happiness, but the pursuit of happiness has to include trying to have amazing relationships, trying to be somebody that can, can share with care, compassion, and concern who they are and what they want.
2: How did you uh, f- start uh, using some of the principles at the University of Michigan? How did that come to be?
9: Um, Well, I was invited to uh, come in and talk about alcohol and drugs, and I told them 18 to 22-year-olds don't need lectures about alcohol and drugs. They know more about it than we do, right? Right. So then I suggested that perhaps uh, we could do some programming to teach people how to identify self-defeating attitudes and behaviors, the ways that I act, the ways that I might behave that could sabotage my dream everyone in an institution like a university has big dreams and so if we can teach people how to identify and eliminate self-defeating attitudes we increase their chances of success so we're talking about how to be the best possible version of yourself I teach people first become the world's greatest expert, and that's how it all started. And so if you can come in and talk to somebody about uh, uh, anything as minute as I'm dating a fool all the way till I'm, I hate myself, that, that's a wide, wide continuum of care and so you've got to give people somebody to talk to about life and the pursuit of happiness what's working what's not working and so that's what we did we created this model which was now going to be called behavioral health care and be and we started it like years decades before anyone else was talking about it
2: and could give us uh, uh, an idea of this of this curriculum because it seems to be effective with the biggest name in sports from as I mentioned Jim Harbaugh uh, when he was a player now he's a coach Tom my, he probably needs it more now uh, Tom Brady who was buried in the bench of the University of Michigan thought he made the bad choice a guy ahead of him was actually I think the coach's son and next thing you know he uh, becomes a starter's got to share the job uh, with Drew Henson gets his becomes a six-round draft pick and the greatest quarterback ever he says this, Greg Carden has and will always be one of the most influential people in my life. He has helped me with my own struggles, personal struggles in both athletics and life. What I learned from Greg is still a part of who I am today. When he writes that, what do you think?
9: I immediately started thinking about how important it is to share with anyone that this book is not about Tom, it's not about me, it's about them. And it's about them learning the same things i taught and teach anyone that will listen. The first thing I had to teach Tom Brady at 19 years old is to stop worrying about what everybody else thinks. I don't care what your coaches think. All I care about is what you think. I don't care if they don't believe in you. All I care about is do you believe in you? And then you teach them how to talk about controlling what they can control. I can't control what they think or how they operate or how they make decisions. What I can control is how I respond. What I can control, what Tom Brady can control, is how he walks out on the field. And if he's in the sixth, seventh slot, he acts like he's a number one quarterback every chance he gets.
2: I know he wrote about that in his book too. That's the way he approached it. Uh, his practices were his games. If he wasn't going to get in the game, um, the name of the book that's your, the, you just mentioned your subtitle: How to Control the Uncontrollables and Thrive. I want to, everyone to hear a clip from you at 60 minutes. It's Tom Brady and you uh, talking uh, uh, about you know basically what you bring to the table. Cut 48. You know he's probably the first
4: person in your life that says, "Well, you don't deserve to really be on the field." He said that to you. I don't remember if that's exactly what it says, but he said, look, there's a reason why the other guy's out there.
0: Tom Brady went to see him when Tom was in college at Michigan because he was feeling badly. He's just frustrated. He's tired. And he, he knows that
9: uh, he has to do something different, and he can't figure out what.
5: Don't go to Greg if you don't want to hear the truth. He will hit you between the eyes, if you will. And they told me this all the time. If, if you don't believe in yourself, then why is anyone else going to believe in you?
9: what matters is his heart and his mind you can't measure that boy's heart you can't measure his mind
2: and in that sport all they do is measure how high can you how big are your hands uh how much how how tall are you how much do you weigh they don't even want to get to know the person all you have to do is watch the combines to see that you're the opposite right
9: Yes, sir. I'm that guy that has the audacity to believe that while you can measure how high I jump and how much weight I can lift and how fast I am, you cannot measure my heart or my mind. They can Look, Brian, you know what you've done. I don't have a clue what you've done, but you know you don 't look like what you 've been through, <laughs> you know that you have pushed yourself when and when everyone questioned and doubted you and you rose above it that 's all we 're trying to teach people is to do what the most successful people that we 've ever heard of have to do. They have to get outside of themselves they 've got to be so clear about who they are and their self love and self acceptance has to overrule wanting everyone else's approval and acceptance
2: i don't want to put down everybody talks about this next generation not being tough enough but i do know one thing pretty consistent in terms of clearing obstacles and scaring uh, and scaling hurdles that doesn't seem to be something they're thriving at where they might have the great intellect they might be a bit uh smarter and whatever you want to say i think we've lost the toughness
9: well, I tell you what, uh, I'm gonna disagree with you politely. You ready? I think that we are not taking any ownership for how we're training them. We have we pampered them, we spoiled them, we set them up to be privileged. And I don't wanna. Why am I? I had a I had a person's mother call me and ask me why they did I didn't hire their son. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Come on, man. But we have to begin to understand that these young people today are capable and qualified. And we've got to walk in and expect the best from them and push them more than we have. That's my opinion. And let them fail. Come on, man. Let them fail because I've got to learn how to manage failure. I've got, I'm teaching people how to manage success. So you know we've got to teach them how to manage failure and to understand that failure, loss, grief, disappointment, trials and tribulations are predictable and therefore manageable. Most importantly, how do you recover? When we talk about physical fitness, we understand recovery time. When we talk about training for mental fitness, that's to balance out our quest to remain mentally healthy, to to not just wait until we're in trouble and in chaos, but to practice, train, and rehearse, being more successful than the average person at recovering as fast as I can. From the crises and challenges I face.
2: Greg Harden's my guest right now. He's the author of Stay Sane in an Insane uh, World. By the way, what did you say to that mom that called up and said, Why didn't you hire their son?
9: I asked her to, perhaps she should consider calling someone else because that's not what we're going to talk about. <laughs> I don't oh. know you. I didn't interview you. Have your child call me and ask me
2: why. <laughs> Understood. So I don't know if this, this really is exactly what you're talking about, but it just reminds me of what Mike Rowe said to me. You know, He goes out there and does dirty jobs, and he deals with a lot of blue-collar workers who will travel the country and find out what they're about. And he's amazed at how, how much happier they are than the Hollywood news community that he also hangs out with. And he says, here are people not making as much, but they had a certainty and occupation and a pride in which they did, uh, and which, for the most part, broadly based, Uh, and a pride in what they did, and they had balance in their lives. He goes, it's amazing to me how much happier they were. How does that fit into your philosophy and policy?
9: Uh, Kill me, you know, you're knocking it out the park. Think about what you're saying. We're talking about regular folks whose self-worth and self-esteem is not based on someone else's measurement. It's not based on how much money they make. It's not based on whether or not they get a, got an award. Or, 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 it's based on self-love and self-acceptance. Remember the person in your neighborhood who didn't have everything, but you couldn't wait to go to their house? <laughs> yeah, because of that energy and the atmosphere and the attitudes in that house just drew you in. So belief in myself, belief in 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 having a life worth living, that's not doesn't come with money. It
2: comes from something inside you. So. I imagine if it does do that, for example, the 48-year-old cop that retires that identity was wrapped up in that uniform as a firefighter mm-hmm. or a cop, or somebody that retires or uh, is no longer acting or performing, if their identity is wrapped up in their athleticism, like Tom Brady retires at 45 years old, I mean, if his identity is wrapped up in his occupation, that adjustment is going to be huge, let alone the 26-year-old who no longer feels as though any football team wants to sign him and was struggling to make a roster to begin with. Do you get a lot of those clients?
9: Yes. Well, think about this, though. I, earlier you, you posed the question, and I, and I set you up just right. What we're talking about is teaching anyone that will listen that how I feel about me must not be based on other people's opinion. Who I am, imagine telling a 19-year-old Tom Brady, a Charles Woodson, a Desmond Howard, a Michael Phelps, you've got to decide with or without football, your life is going to be amazing. And once you believe that, football becomes what you do, not who you are. You just happen to do it better than most.
2: So so when you go up to a guy that's a six-string quarterback at the University of Michigan who's mm-hmm. uh, rail thin, uh, who wonders if they made the right choice, maybe they could be, in Tom Brady's case, I think he could have played baseball, some people said. So yes. when his answer is, well, it's what you think of yourself. If his answer is, I don't think much of myself. You know, I'm not that good, don't know many people on campus, kind of uh, 1,500 miles away from my family. I don't, I don't, if his answer is I don't have that self-esteem, then what do you say? You
9: say, then that's what we're going to be doing. I can't tell you how to throw a ball. I can't tell you how to read defenses. What I can teach you is to believe in yourself without question or pause, to believe that your life has meaning and purpose. It may not be football. But we going to find out who you are and who you want to become.
2: And that takes work.
9: Because, bruh, you, you train to be physically fit. You have to train to be mentally fit. You don't just, you know, say, well, I came in and I saw Greg Harden and, uh, you know, uh, six months ago and uh, I can't remember what he said. You have to get coaching. You have to have, mm. uh, it has to be... Uh, a recurring theme that you're going to work out on your mind.
2: Understood. And, and you know, just because you're not going to win a Super Bowl, hold up the Lombardi Trophy, it doesn't mean you can't be a winner in life, nor should you judge yourself on that. Last thing, I also think, too, for younger people listening to us right now, a lot of them say, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what I want to major in. And my answer always has been, go find out. What does your neighbor do? Are they happy? <laughs> well, what does go? You know, what it does interest you? Why don't you find out what is it's like to own a business, a deli, a, a dry cleaner? What does it enable you to do? Do you want to be a lifeguard? Go find, go talk to a lifeguard. But you got to aggressively attack it. And even if you decide, hey, that's not for me, that's still a victory.
9: Brian, kill me, your stock just went up with me. Are you ready for this? You said exactly what must be said. I remember I told God if I lived to see 25, there must be some purpose. I hit 25 and said, oops, I guess I made a promise. And so, okay, I've got to find my purpose. Well, guess what my first purpose was? To find my purpose. Yeah. <laughs> and I pursue, To pursue it,
2: to find out what clicks, to experiment. Like you said, bro, you nailed it. Well, uh... you. Greg, Nailed it. Well, I got I got news for you. you sold a lot of books. Uh Greg Harden, Motivating America, uh, one radio show at a time and one quarterback at a time. Stay <laughs> sane in an insane world. Uh Greg, congratulations on it and great talking to you.
9: Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate
2: you. All right, when we come back, I appreciate you. i uh, we'll take your calls and no excuses. Get on the phone. Don't tell me you're at work. You heard me.
4: He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade.
2: You never have enough time to talk to a guy like Greg Harden, who's seen so much in his life and is very humble about it, did not have the greatest start to his life, had problems with school, kind of pressure uh, to excel, didn't know what direction he had, was a really good track athlete, and then he ends up using his life lessons to help inspire kids at their most vulnerable time. And they're all mostly elite athletes. If you're playing sports at the University of Michigan, you're a great athlete, even if you don't get off the bench. But what he did for people like Desmond Howard, what he did for people like Tom Brady, what he did for Michael Phelps, and so many others that you may not know uh, really pushed Greg Hardin to write a book. And go out and pick it up if you want to inspire somebody. But by the way, it's a quick read. And the anecdotes of the people that you know make it really fly by because you know what they became, but you didn't know their hinge points in their life. Uh, his book is called Stay Sane in an Insane World. It was one of the interviews I did where so many people were texting me saying, What was the name of that book again? So I think we made some sales. So coming up next, somebody I've been dying to meet, who I've been watching for 20 years on ESPN, who we knew was full of controversy from the time she filled in on The View to some of the things she said in the pandemic, uh, but we know she was fantastic on the air with great knowledge. Uh, Sage Steele, uh, she finally uh, turned around and said, "ESPN, Disney, I'm tired of being bullied. I'm going to sue you." Don't know the details, but they are have a settlement. Uh, now she's a free agent. And I think her first radio TV interview outside a podcast with Megyn Kelly was here. So my interview, two parts with Sage Steele, coming your way.
0: There's a misnomer that ESPN is some liberal place. That is a lie. I know a bunch of conservatives that work at ESPN. I'm telling you what I know. But the reason why I bring that subject up is because I think it's a mistake when a corporation tries to silence anybody. I think you let everybody speak. That way the company doesn't get blamed for the positions an individual takes. The individual has to be culpable for the words that we articulate and the impact that it has ultimately on us. If I say something and it ultimately costs ESPN dollars and as a result ESPN says you got to go, they're not saying I have to go because of my politics. They're saying I have to go because I compromised their bottom line. And I think... That's the position all corporations should take, as opposed to trying to curtail or silence anybody because you think their individual words are going to be a reflection on the whole. It is not when you let everybody speak.
2: So Stephen A. Smith was was really talking about Sage uh, Steele leaving ESPN, uh, both staples of that. Uh, of the 24-hour sports network and Stephen A. Smith knows I just read his book he was suspended twice <laughs> yes. one time he was fired just like oh yeah. they didn't like what he was saying yeah. got suspended for two weeks because he's in and he's in a debate show yep so uh Sage Steele is actually here if you're watching Fox Nation uh we're meeting for the first time and we did have uh being we're both half Italian well, you're a third Italian I'm, half, I'm
1: a quarter Italian I guess a
2: quarter Italian yes
1: something a- like that mom's half Irish half Italians what does that make me your yes, mom's a quarter, have, yeah,
2: yeah. I would think, yeah, if we have to divide into <laughs> thirds, <laughs> math. You know, we're going to do twenty-three and me and just solve okay, this once and for all. What is your take on Stephen A. kind of referring to your situation.
1: I love that man, and I have worked with him from day one since 2007. And I have been a huge, <clears throat> excuse me, defender of his when he has been suspended because I, I, I didn't agree with the reasons why he was suspended at the time. And that wasn't, an, and that was a while ago too. But it was interesting being that it is a, his format, is debate. Um, at the end of the day, Stephen A. is on record, and we've had conversations about this. We we often disagree about a lot of things. Um, my whole point from day one is consistency, and you cannot allow everyone else to talk about whatever they want that has nothing to do with sports right. on our airwaves, on our platforms, whether it's any of the ESPN or ESPN radio or even social media, and allow and then the one person who happens to be me that speaks up about other things. And by the way, in the podcast that with Jay Cutler in which all the comments took place, um, that was my off day, my own time asking about things that were personal to me as a biracial woman with the vaccine, et cetera. So I can have opinions on things that affect me. I'm not even talking about abortion. So to me, it's just being consistent. You can't have rules for some and not for others. And by the way, as a parent of three, it works that way too. Consistency is all I ever wanted and that's what's been missing.
2: Right, um, you had one thing to say, and if, I, if I'm misstating this, but you're biracial. Yes. And you don't want to disrespect your white mom By saying that you're black or white, you're biracial. Yes. And you brought that up with President Obama. You said, listen, why does he say he's black? He's got a white Actually,
1: I didn't bring it up. I was on The View. Barbara Walters on live TV brought it up to me and said, well, what's wrong? Why don't you, why do you have to say biracial? Our current president, this is in 2014, our president says he's black. Why why can't you? And I'm like, show me the rule book. What What is this? And most importantly, why? Yeah. Why does it matter? And this is in 2014 on ABC. No one had a problem with, with what I said then. Fast forward to 2021 and there was an issue. I will always say it, Brian. I am so proud of all of me, yeah. of my black side and my white side. And to be told to choose is disgusting. It's wrong. That has a whole race connotation as well. And and I used to be afraid to speak about this. But when you're kind of beaten up your whole life about it and then someone comes at you, enough, but I know from having spoken about it, the importance of getting it out there because there are so many people, biracial, young, old kids, girls, boys, who feel this way. and. I'm just not afraid so I have to be there for them too. Why I,
2: choose? The thing and I heard you talking to Megan about this with Barbara Walters basically almost got got physical with you <laughs> in the back room. I mean was she she was she I know she ended up sadly having dementia.
1: Sure, yeah. But was yeah, I don't know if that
2: was playing a role in that. I
1: don't know. Listen, I I said it kind of like jokingly because everyone who was there and witnessed it and I, some of my friends Aggressive. were there. We were it was just we were Laughing, it was like I was speechless. You would think Whoopi
2: Goldberg might have a problem with it, but you said she was kind. Whoopi
1: was great. Yeah, she was. She was great to me the entire time. I have a lot of respect for Whoopi, the human being. I really do. Well, but Elizabeth when I Hasselbeck that, said the
2: same thing, by the way. But go and ahead. I
1: love Elizabeth Hasselbeck. Yeah. She's a friend of mine, and I have so much respect for her and what she went through for so many years on that show. But when I, it was funny, and I said it in jest because I was laughing that Barbara Walters back then elbowed me, and I, and then people took it. Sage Steele says she assaulted her. You people need a life. Like, stop.
2: Uh, I know. That's one thing. Um, if you eventually ever come to Fox or anything <laughs> to do with Fox... Get used to that. Oh my I, gosh. I Don't Google my name, uh, but you know, Sage, you've arguably had it. You've had a challenge almost every day because you are the breadwinner in your family. Yeah. You're trying to raise three kids, and you had your dream. You have your dream job at ESPN, top five sportscasters, top three maybe in the country. Doing one of the uh, my personal as a broadcaster, you're putting together these highlights, putting them together, knowing you're ad libbing half of them, doing two things at once. You have to be competent in all these sports, international names, knowing on the fly. <laughs> (laughs) A guy, you know, a guy scores 46 points. You better know how to uh, say his or her name. Yes. I just have so much respect. Thank you. You you get a a tenth of the support support people actually think ESPN anchors get. You're doing everything.
1: Thank you so much. Number one, you're on television. You understand. And the so pressure. On. And our show is two hours live every day, breaking news. It's kind of, What people don't see, which is my favorite part, that whole hashtag BTS behind the scenes, is we are walking and talking while doing highlights. The, the studio is massive. And it is a physically challenging show, too. The directors, we are the best and in the business. And someone in your ear. And someone in my ear, which is why I'm crazy. But I think it helps me <laughs> in this job. Right.
2: It's as it's, it's close to sports as being in sports, yes. right? Yes. Because you have to do things, adapt in real time, make your own decisions, and the ramifications are tremendous. I absolutely will it. And you'll be doing it again. If you choose or you, or you want another forum, you're not going anywhere. But I want you to hear, everybody to hear, the crazy comments you made to former quarterback Jay Cutler, Cut56. What's the band-aid for?
1: <laughs> well, I got my shot today. I respect everyone's decision. I really yeah. do. Yeah. But to mandate it is... Um, sick Mm -hmm. and it's scary to me in many ways. Um but I have a job, a job that I love and frankly a job that I that I need. But again, I love it. I just um I'm not surprised it got to this point, especially Mm -hmm. with Disney. I mean a a global company like that. But I just um like it was actually emotional. Like so, and it's funny, everybody else has their, yay, look, and here's yes. my card, and let's, it. like, you know what, you want to see what my face looked like when I had to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I get it to, to an extent, but I think the mandate is what I really have an issue with, and, and I, I I don't know, I don't know what comes next.
2: And uh, we basically got it, because, you know, the same thing at Fox, you know, we had to deconflict, everyone had to go to separate studios, and to come back in, you had to get vaccinated, but you didn't lose your job, you worked from home. And then there was no disclaimer on this uh, on this vaccine mandate. It's one of the big stories today that we still go. And there's talking about putting masks on kids. Again, so uh, it's not over. So you have That's what this- I was
1: referring to, by the way, that two years ago is what's next? And now it's here. All of a sudden, Dr. Fauci has come out of his basement again, and we're listening again, and oh gosh, COVID's not well, over. I'm not listening. well Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't say we, because yeah. you and I are not. And I think I'm not. here's, I actually think millions of Americans, many more millions, maybe who quietly felt that way back a couple years ago, to me, I'm concerned. I don't think people are going to take it this time. It's on the way. Absolutely Like, we know it. And you know what? They better not take it. Because if we, as a society, continue to just take these marching orders, especially when we are—actually, we're following your science, and we're listening to you, and now you're full of it. We all know. And so to bring it back, if we say yes again, if we allow it again, it's our own fault.
2: Absolutely. And I agree with you. Have you ever—and by the way, Operation Warp Speed— If you see the technology behind it, get the story behind it. I think their objectives were pure. I don't think it was to make Pfizer rich. It was to find a way out of this. The one difference between Trump and Biden, here's your vaccine. Make your own decision. He never would have mandated. Ask him. He never would have mandated it. In the beginning, he said, yeah, I got vaccinated right away. There was other people that didn't. Now, why did President Trump get vaccinated? He told me as soon as I called back and I saw some of my friends not in great shape in their 80s that were dying and I said to myself, you know, we saw for a while people were being put into refrigerators because they didn't know what this thing was. They were killing them by putting them on respirators as part of the problem. Exactly. So they were making it up as they went along. We know that now. They were killing them. While dying alone, a horrific death, the families couldn't come in. So you made the decision, I'll do it. Got to keep my job, but I don't have to be happy about it. And what did management... I complied.
1: Had- That's the thing. I can have an opinion and, and comply. Uh, as long as I'm complying, and I and I did that. And what happened? Uh, I was told um, you can't whack the company. You whack the company. You whack Disney. It's not going over well. And I said, but I, I. What do you mean? I, I'm giving facts. They forced it. I. I do think it's sick, but I. But I complied with it. Um, and then the uh, comments related to the Obama, Barbara Walters, and my own view on how I feel as a biracial woman. Um, that didn't sit over well. And were you mean in the same conversation? Well. It, was all, it was all in the same podcast. It all took place in the same podcast. Oh, okay. So that's when I the phone started ringing, the agent called, um, and they said in order to keep your your job, you have to publicly apologize. And I fought it. Trust me. Trust me. I because I knew right. that I was, wait, I'm just being true to myself, just like everyone else who's going on their own tangents, on our airwaves, a big difference, um, about, again, things that have nothing to do with sports on our own airwaves. So I just thought, wait, Where's this double standard? I don't explain it to me. And there was no explanation. Um, And so I did it and I apologized. And then they released a statement and then I lost assignments and things that I had worked hard on weren't promoted and the domino effect. And it kept going and going and going. And at that point, it's one thing to apologize and move on, which is what I was told would happen. It's another thing for the punishment to continue to be levied. And that's where, again, a lot of years of things building up to this, but that's where I had to personally draw my line, and there's never been a a scarier decision I've made in my life because I knew the repercussions. When you stand up and when a lawsuit is filed, um, there's no turning back. There's no reconciliation, usually. And that broke my heart because my whole life, when I started at ESPN, my kids were 11 months old, 2 and 4. They're now 17, 19, and 21. All they've known is mom at ESPN, and we've had a beautiful life there. I have zero regrets from any of it. From even, even when back in the day when I stayed silent about a lot of things, I probably shouldn't have. Um, but I'm not one to go way back to, let me dig this up. That was my decision then. Onward. My decision now is obvious. Um, I'm so sad it had to come to this. My goal now is to, if I continue to, to speak out, and hopefully other companies are listening, especially with what we just talked about, with the potential, it seems like, of COVID coming back, um, they have to listen to us. To employees. It's my health. It's my body, my choice, is it not? So I, I think I think that I think that it's really now or never. And I just hope that by me doing this, I mean, I'm just one little annoying person with a bunch of curly. like, but I hope that others aren't as fearful as I was for so many years because at some point, shame on the employers for doing this. But I do believe it's personal responsibility. And I couldn't continue to complain about something. If I wasn't willing to take a stand, as costly as it might be, and it's been costly. But
2: you know have many people listening right now without public positions have to put up with uh, not let's say a shot or things they don't agree with, bosses that are abusive, uh, situations where they're not promoted when they should because they say, "I am the breadwinner. I have to suck it up and ah. deal with it. It hurts your self-esteem." But what's your approach? I got to make my house payments. I got to pay my bills. That's why I, I, I don't you. have. I don't. You know. I don't have a cushion, a two-year cushion to go find myself. Right. A lot of times they just don't mix. And, a lot, and those, I that's get why that. people can relate to your message that you had to suck it up and say what you had to say to keep that job because you you care about your kids.
1: And I got a lot of pushback for people saying, yeah, right. You're just like everybody else. You came out on your I'm sorry tour and you, and you did it. And, you know, all the names, all the attacks. And, that, and you know what? I, I understood it, but I, I was... I was so desperate, and I wanted to be able to explain why I had to go ahead and do it and how I, why I had to apologize, because that's the first thing. Don't apologize. I had no choice. Here's the thing. As a, a mother doing this, you know, their fathers um, in town were divorced, but but he's involved. But as the mother and, you know, um, primary custody, et cetera, um, they're watching me. And if I am encouraging my kids, I have two daughters and a son, but especially those girls, to stand tall and be strong and stand up for what you believe in and defend others, and then I st- sit silently, I-, I I couldn't do it. I was physically ill thinking about not practicing what I preach. Right. I just can't believe it had to come to this.
2: But the stress of that moment when you had that meeting, it's almost like someone hits symbols in your ear. You're seeing what's happening. You're seeing your career. Managers you thought had your back uh, and friends, they all... The friends
1: are, listen, the, friends in quotes, right? And I actually think that's been a huge blessing because that's when, you know, oh, and it's thin (laughs) and it's a very small circle um, and that's been painful. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And I am a super sensitive, emotional person, but it's been a huge blessing to know who really, and by the way, people who don't agree with me on many of these topics, but it's not about that. I like you, the human. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what your opinions are. It's about the human connection, and loyalty. Loyalty. I'm an Army kid, right? I mean, loyalty and integrity and principle right. matters.
2: When we come back, a few more minutes with Sage Steele's kind enough to be in studio. Wasn't able to do that. Would, would ESPN let you? No, they would never let you come on um, Fox, would
4: they?
1: I'm not. Oh, Stephen A. Smith not, used to. I'm, I'm not Stephen A. We're not Stephen A. (laughs) Uh There's one Stephen A. Back in a moment.
4: (laughs) Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
0: We ended up getting married at West Point. We were young
1: and very naive. My parents... Um, pretty much disowned me and didn't come to the wedding or anything like that they were in panama and she called her mom to say i'm gonna have a baby and her mom hung up the phone
3: there were many things that were said
5: about what a relationship with a black husband would be and how you would end up being treated etc and so how are her parents going to know she's okay so I believe it was once, a, once month.
3: a month and once a month I would pen a letter. Here's where we are. Here's what's going on. Here's what we're doing together.
2: So Never that recently. is uh, Sage Steele's parents on NFL films, a great a documentary. Um, and I did not know this originally, but I was just listening that your dad was the first black football player at West Point.
1: Play varsity football ever at West Point. Broke the color barrier. Yeah.
2: Unbelievable. But they were talking about what it was like for them personally. What years are we talking about?
1: They got married in 1971. So in October is 52 years for them, and it was just coming off of the Civil Rights era and Vietnam and such a difficult time. And my mom's um, parents disowned her, a white mom, for marrying a black man. And so that was the story that I did not know until NFL films did that piece on me that every month my dad would write to my mom's parents who wouldn't respond, wouldn't pick up the phone to say, "Listen, you're not paying attention to her, and you have disowned her, but I'm taking care of your daughter and that was that every time I hear it, I get you know
2: I can imagine uh your your last name aptly uh, yes. it, it really talks about your parents, right
1: totally and um, I've used the hashtag you- for thank you i i here's the thing I never. I never knew I was strong. I didn't know, and that's why when I said earlier I wouldn't change anything, all of these ups and downs in my dream job, because I had to realize my strength, and it's been a, it's been a blessing.
2: And now you're on your own. Uh, you got your settlement on your uh, lawsuit, and if people want to know more about you, Sage, you can go to your website, sagesteel.com.
1: Thank you. All right. Thank you, Brian. And
2: would I be able to talk to you still Saturday night eight o'clock?
1: Yes. All right. Hello. Let's Thank go. Thank
2: you. <laughs>